Welcome to Pemba On Demand. I'm Norm Chapin, your host. I am very excited to welcome you to our podcast. Pemba On Demand is produced for physicians interested in professional development. We will be discussing a wide range of topics on the podcast. I will be interviewing physician leaders from the U.S. and from other countries who have graduated from the Physician Executive MBA program at the University of Tennessee. These physicians will be sharing stories of professional and personal growth, overcoming challenges in their organizations, and discussing key leadership skills they have learned from the MBA program and ongoing professional development. Dr. Mara, welcome to Pemba On Demand. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. Well, we're excited to have you here. I, I'm very much looking forward to your presentation and the information that you have to share with us. Thank you so much. I'm happy to, to talk to you about my experience at Pemba and beyond. Great. Well, I'll, um, I'll bring your presentation up on the, the, the scene here, the screen, and then you'll be all set to go. Okay, thank you. So I wanted to first introduce myself. Um, so my name is Rinku Mara. I'm a pediatric endocrinologist, and I am currently practicing in the Northern Virginia, D.C. metro area. Um, I'm originally from the D.C. metro area, and I did my training out in Chicago at Rush University for pediatrics. And then I did my pediatric endocrinology fellowship at the University of Iowa. So I am a pediatric endocrinologist. I'm also a pediatric um, obesity medicine specialist. And I've worked throughout my career. I worked in academics. I also worked at the FDA. And then I was a medical director for a large multi-specialty pediatric endocrinology group in Northern Virginia. I also worked in the payer space. So I was, I've been a medical director in Anthem Medicaid and then also at Aetna uh, in the commercial space. And most recently, as of January of this year, I started my direct specialty care pediatric endocrinology practice. And so how I got here really was, like I said, I started my practice shortly after fellowship in 2008. I was an assistant professor at a large academic center. And I realized that um, very, or very quickly that seeing a patient every 15 minutes, especially a patient with type 1 diabetes, was very, very difficult. And um, what I wanted to do was really take time to provide more education. And, and as an immigrant myself, I realized that it does take time and um, a, a lot of patience to explain to families what they need with regards to understanding their health. Um, I've also taken time to understand the insurance model of care and reimbursement policies. And I've also always wanted to reach a broader audience and affect larger populations. And that's really, you know, how I got to where I am now. Um, what I've always wanted really is innovation, improving health outcomes, and then really expanding and reaching larger audiences. And in 2022, I joined PEMBA, the Haslam College of Business graduate program and obtained my MBA. Um, and that really led me to where I am right now in my career. So I am the CEO and founder of the Mara Clinic, which is a pediatric endocrinology direct specialty care practice. It is also a telemedicine practice, and I see patients right now in four different states. So I see patients in Virginia, Maryland, Iowa, and Florida. 
And what I want to talk about today is really my mission and the problems and opportunities that I saw. And I really developed these throughout my training um, and education at the Haslam College of Business. So like I said, my clinic is a pediatric telemedicine clinic. I do offer in-person business as well in Virginia, where I'm located. And I really focused on increasing access to care to pediatric endocrinology um, or for pediatric endocrinology patients in Virginia, Maryland, Iowa, and Florida. The problems that I encountered were that really there is a lack of access across the country to pediatric subspecialists. There are very few pediatric subspecialists that, that participate um, in this type of practice, in particular managing children with diabetes, growth problems, thyroid disorders, and pubertal concerns. And patients are often having to travel to large academic centers to, um, to get the type of care that they need. There's also a lack of patient satisfaction. I myself was seeing patients every 15 minutes um, and really didn't have time to devote to my patients, and, and patients sense that. And as a result, there's often lack of patient knowledge or understanding about their disease process and how to manage themselves, especially for chronic illness. With the COVID-19 pandemic, there was an increased adoption of telemedicine services across the country to increase access to care. And it has since been adopted by parents and adolescents as well as college students. In fact, multiple studies have showed that patients prefer telemedicine over in-person visits as it saves them time and um, improves their access to their provider. Multiple states since the COVID-19 pandemic had also changed their telemedicine laws to allow practitioners to practice across state lines. And there was lack of patient satisfaction with the current traditional health delivery, healthcare delivery system. And so when I looked across the U.S. and I did a market analysis, I really found that the average wait time to see a pediatric endocrinologist was anywhere from three months to six months. And all of the practices across the country, whether they were private practice or academic centers, all required referrals from the primary care doctors. In fact, I even called the pediatric endocrinologist to practice near my home where I used to practice yesterday. And I found out that there currently is a wait list in March and they're not accepting patients at all. They're, you're, they're just asking their patients to put themselves on a wait list to be seen. Um, and so really, this is across the country what we're seeing. There's a lack of patient uh, satisfaction with the current healthcare environment. So we typically see patients as pediatric endocrinologists in practice every 20 to 30 minutes. And this is due to the need for, decrease, for increased volume due to decreased re insurance reimbursement. And there is always a need for a referral and often insurance restrictions based on who can be seen and what type of care we can provide. From a patient perspective, there's often a lack of understanding of the diagnosis and the treatment. So patients come in, they're usually in and out of a room within 10 to 15 minutes. By the time they're checked in by the MA and put in and see the doctor, really they spend maybe five to 10 minutes total and they really don't understand their diagnosis. Often I found that my patients were Googling things that they didn't understand in the office, not to mention after the visit, there was no direct access to the physician. And so they were having to call multiple times to ask questions or even in the case of diabetes, we're not really understanding what to do if they were ill, if their blood sugars were high, if their blood sugars were low, often leading to a lot of after-hours phone calls and pages to the on-call endocrinologist. Um, and this also led to physician burnout. 
So based on the observations of the market, um, I decided to propose a solution to the problems that I saw. So in terms of lack of access, um, like I said, three to six month wait on average to see a pediatric endocrinologist, I decided to tailor my practice to one that does not require any referrals. There were no insurance restrictions. Uh, the patients could pay as they went, or they could pay in a subscription model, so a monthly fee where they have, would have access to my care at all times. And they, I really wanted to have a goal that they would have their questions answered within 24 hours and to have the same day, next day, or same week appointments. And I really wanted to offer telemedicine in multiple states and, and in-person options as needed. My appointments, telemedicine and in-person are one hour for new patients, and I have about 30 to 45 minutes for follow-ups. My treatment options are tailored to each individual patient, so there's no cookie-cutter approach. And I really approach the individual patient with regards to what their needs, desires, and anxiety um, is, really. And often these patients do have a lot of anxiety, really because they don't understand fully what their diagnosis means and what the long-term outcomes are. And I really strive to focus on that. Uh, my patient appointments, like I said, are one hour. I coach them on next steps. I often make an appointment with them within two to three weeks to discuss their lab results. So I don't leave that to chance and say, okay, I'll call you when I have the lab results available. I make an appointment for them each visit. They have an appointment scheduled within two to three weeks to discuss their labs and next steps. Uh, they also have access to me via text and email. And then I offer social media campaigns to offer more patient education. So the first phase was to start with telemedicine services for pediatric endocrinology care in the state of Virginia. And then my next phase was to expand to Maryland and Florida, which I've already done that. And my third phase was to expand to Iowa and other states that allowed telehealth across state lines. And finally, to add other physicians um, as needed. So really, in conclusion, what I wanted to do was provide pediatric endocrine care from the comfort of the patient home. I wanted to improve access to care and increase patient satisfaction and really focus on providing evidence-based care based on the Pediatric Endocrine Society, Endocrine Society, and um, American Board of Obesity Medicine guidelines, in addition to the ADA guidelines. Um, and I think that's the end of my presentation. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to give us such a thorough presentation about your practice. I think that was great. And it did it, it did raise a lot of questions in my mind. So I thought maybe if you were agreeable, we'd talk about a little bit more about some of the aspects of your current practice and the role and that type of thing. Sure. Yes, absolutely. Great. The first, the first question that came to my mind is what what were the primary motivations for you to embark down the path of concierge medicine or direct primary care? You obviously practiced in a more traditional model for quite some time. Yeah. So, so the reality is that I had wanted to. I've always wanted to reach a broader audience, and I think I was very dissatisfied with the current state of healthcare and the, the state of care that I myself was delivering to my patients. Um, I knew that if I had just, you know, spent maybe even 10 to 15 minutes more with each patient, uh, I could probably deliver better care for them, educate them, 
and and really teach them about how to manage their disease. But I didn't have the time to do that in traditional practice. Um, I was really seeing you know patients every 15, 10 to fifteen minutes. Um, I, I actually really you know when I was in practice in um, my private practice setting, I realized that I did have a significant amount of burnout um, in, in in the job to the point that I thought I didn't want to practice medicine at all anymore, like clinical medicine. I want to do something different. And that's part of the reason that I left the practice and went to DC Medicaid was because, again, I said I wanted to, you know, practice in a broader, reach a broader population of patients, uh, reach, reach a larger audience. And then I just, I think, needed a break from the clinical practice and everything that went along with it. I think ultimately when I did my MBA and talked to my colleagues at the MBA program, I went into the program thinking I would want to do something in corporate medicine or go higher in the insurance world with regards to uh, care, you know, how we manage care. But when I went to the MBA program at Haslam, most of my colleagues were asking me questions about pediatric endocrinology. And I realized that I still loved the science behind pediatric endocrinology. I really loved taking uh, their questions and educating even my, um, my fellow colleagues about pediatric endocrinology. And I started thinking, maybe this should be just a trial for me to see if I can do it, if I can actually develop a care delivery model that I would be satisfied with and that would help patients. So I think I wasn't ever done with clinical medicine. It was just the way that I was delivering the care that I didn't want to do anymore. And how long were you out of clinical medicine before you transitioned back into this model? So I, even in the, when, I, when I left my practice in 2020, I left in 2020 right at the height of the pandemic, and I was still doing virtual care for the old practice. So for the entire year afterwards, I was doing a uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome telemedicine practice uh, with, with the old group uh, with a pediatric gynecologist. And during that time, I actually saw that my patients who I had seen in practice uh, were now embracing telemedicine. And in fact, our, our um, no-show rates were zero for telemedicine, whereas when they were in person, it was a 50% no-show rate. And so I really saw that these adolescent girls were coming in, adolescent and college girls were dialing in, sometimes as early as seven in the morning before school started so they could get into their visits. And I saw that that was a model of care that I had always wanted to do, but we were so limited by insurance restrictions. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, those had been lifted. And so when I started seeing you know, some of those things, I thought, well, it would be nice if I could do this on my own outside of the clinical you know, practice setting. Um, so I really wasn't out of practice for that long because I was doing you know, part-time work with the practice. I still took call for the old practice uh, one weekend a month, uh, mainly because uh, I was the medical director of the practice and I had a hard time letting go uh, and I wanted to help my colleagues and they were not going to be able to hire somebody uh, in fact, it's four years later, they still have not hired anybody at all. And so um, there's a significant shortage of pediatric endocrinologists across the country. So I really wasn't out of practice for that long, but probably fully maybe about a year and a half that I didn't see patients uh, while I was trying to develop this model of care. And now that you've started up the Mara Clinic, are, are you still helping out the practice at all? No, I'm not anymore. I mean, I'm too busy this <laughs> practice to do it. But they still have, they have about a, you know, four to six month wait still to have patients come in. So was, was your ovarian care 
practice the the cystic ovarian disease that you were working with, polycystic ovarian disease. Was yes. that your first foray into telemedicine, or had you been using it in the clinic for other patient populations? Yeah. So, so my goal when I was the medical director of the pediatric endocrinology practice was to do diabetes care via, virtually. So I had been begging the administration to do virtual visits for diabetes care for many, many years. And we knew that diabetes care, you know, there's many studies across the country that showed that care for diabetes could be done virtually. The patients come every three months to a pediatric endocrinology office. They take time off of school. Their parents take time off of work. They're missing often whole days of school to come in to see the doctor. And all I was doing at the visit was really all I had time for was looking at their blood sugars and making insulin dose adjustments. And that could easily be done from telemedicine. And in fact, I would have probably had more time to see them telemedicine because I wouldn't have to have the MA check them in and then bring them back to the room and do their blood pressure, height, and weight, which takes another 10 minutes. And so I was begging the administration to do that. But we had a lot of laws before the COVID-19 pandemic with regards to billing and site of service that we could not utilize that care. And so right at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, we said, let's just do this. Uh, in fact, I was the telemedicine director of my practice because I really was thinking that this is the direction I wanted to go um, before the COVID-19 pandemic, but we weren't making any headway at all. We couldn't, I, we had probably seen one patient in a year via telemedicine and we saw them for free and, you know, weren't able to bill for it. So there were a lot of restrictions, um, but the, the PCOS clinic we did really right when COVID hit, we were, you know, geared up to do telemedicine and we were able to bill for it. And I was able to see them from my home and they were in their home and we could bill for those visits. And that's really how it started. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference between your financial model in your concierge practice, your direct primary care practice, versus the practice that you had when you were in the clinic setting, in the, in the, in the group? Right. So, so I don't now, because I practice across state lines, I don't have uh, insurance that I take for my visit itself. So my consultation fee is direct care to the patient, meaning they pay me directly. They use their FSA or HSA, or they just pay, um, you know, their fees. But then I provide a super bill for them with all my codes, and they get reimbursed by their insurance depending on what their out-of-network rates are. Are there a large percentage of insurance companies that will pay that out-of-network fee for your services? There, there are. There are several insurances that will pay out-of-network. I don't know what, you know, off the top of my head, what the rates are, but sometimes they're in anywhere from fifty percent to eighty percent, depending on what the what the each individual person has for their out of network coverage. Not to mention that they have deductible. You know, some of them have high deductible plans, so they sort of have to meet their deductible before. That being said, when I was in a traditional practice, I often had no idea what my visits, what what charges were being collected for my visits. I would see the patients. I had no idea. The only way I found out one time was that I looked at a review. I looked at myself online, <laughs> a review, and somebody had reviewed me very poorly uh, in my old practice. And it wasn't for the care that I delivered. It was because they were charged $650 for my visit fee. And they had paid a copay and they had thought their insurance was covering it. And then the practice billed them $650. At that point, I realized that, you know, it may not be very different. And there's a lot of hidden healthcare costs that we as patients and as doctors also are not aware of mm -hmm. for our patients. 
Um, so I could see a patient, you know, with an insurance based model, they pay a 25 or $30 copay. And then their insurance has certain things that, that they won't pay for, um, or they have to meet a deductible. And so they bill the patient anyways. So I, I really wanted my model of care to be very transparent. Like my pricing is very transparent and I'm in the process right now of having uh, laboratories bill me. So LabCorp Quest or Sunrise bill me. And with a direct care model, we can actually get lower lab rates, lab costs for our patients because sometimes patients are paying exorbitant amount of fees for for labs as well. Um, But I really wanted a model where patients knew exactly what they were paying for up front and without any hidden fees. And I think that's also what direct care offers. So do you pass those costs, those lower costs through to the patients or is it considered yes. part of the package? No. So we pass on those those lower cost savings onto the patient as well. Do you have any kind of similar arrangement as it relates to medication costs, which is another huge burden on a lot of patients? Right. I don't. Um, so some direct care practices do, and they're allowed to have in-house pharmacies. The state of Virginia, it's very complicated to do that. So I don't have an in-house pharmacy, um, and I don't plan to do that right now. But I do look to see what the cheapest um, option is for my patients as far as their medications are concerned. As a pediatric endocrinologist, I mean, I think the most expensive medication that I um, was prescribing in practice um, was probably insulin, but the insulin, you know, prices have gone down significantly. And now the cost of the medications, such as the weight loss medications like Wagovi or Ozempic or Manjaro, I mean, those are the highest cost. And unfortunately, I don't have a way to lower the cost if insurance doesn't cover those. But our medications like metformin or thyroid medication are generally not too expensive. For, and those are the typical ones that I use in my practice. Um, I use other medications to stop puberty. And often, I will, you know, their insurance will cover those. Um, and so, you know, we, we usually don't have, uh, you know, a, a high cost for some of the medications other than the weight loss medication. What percentage of your practice are from patients within Virginia versus the Maryland, uh, Iowa, and the other states that, that, you're bran- that you have branched out into? Yeah, so the majority of my patients are in Virginia and Maryland. So I practice in Northern Virginia. Uh, I have for many years, and I used to see patients in Maryland as well when I was um, at the academic center. And so most of the patients are finding me in Virginia and Maryland. I do have patients from Florida as well who have found me. I have patients with diabetes who have found me from Florida. And so um, I would say as far as percentage-wise, I would say you know, 10% from Florida at this point, I probably have a, a few patients, maybe 10% from Iowa, and then the rest, 80%, are from you know, Virginia and Maryland mm-hmm. combination, which really is not too far. I mean, I'm 20 minutes outside the border from Maryland, so people can drive 20 minutes across the border and see me. What percentage of your patients were patients that followed you from your from your clinic? Zero. None. Really? None. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had left the practice, and the practice had sent out an e- uh, a letter Actually, in 2020, when I left, when I you know still working part time, but I had left the position as medical director, and so the practice sent out a letter saying that I was leaving the practice, and so I really started this practice from uh, no patients that followed me, and I you know really wasn't I didn't have a non compete because it's been about four years, but I really didn't reach out to any of my former patients or let them know that I was you know practicing. Uh, One of your interests in starting the practice was 
resolving access issues and spending more time with with patients. I'd be interested to know uh, what feedback you've been getting from the patients that you are seeing uh, comparing the interaction with you compared to a more traditional model. So I will say the feedback is just, it's night and day, to be honest. So spending an hour with a person or with a patient and their family and then following up with them pretty regularly really allows you to um, be more involved with the patient and really understand um, a lot of, you know, their social factors that come into play. I'm really involved with a lot of the, um, you know, patients who have really lack of understanding of their medical diagnosis. I really can spend that time and delve into it. Not to mention, I do nutrition counseling and education for my patients, almost every single one of them, regardless of what they come in to see me for, because there's a lot of factors that, a lot of conditions that they have that are directly related to their eating and their lifestyle. And so I have a, a you know a long time to spend with them. So I have a lot more fun in my clinic with my patients. I've learned a lot from them. I enjoy that patient interaction. Um, and that, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword because I have found certain disease processes and diagnoses that have been missed sometimes for many years, not because they saw somebody who was better than me, but it's really because the patients didn't have a physician that had the time to ask them certain questions or really delve into certain lab abnormalities that I look at really closely now and I've picked up on things. And it's sometimes very hard because I get very emotionally attached to the patients and their families too. And so it's hard to separate that. Whereas when I was in traditional practice, I was seeing patients, I mean, I didn't even know people's names. And um, if I saw them at the grocery store, I wouldn't actually know who they were because I had spent such a small amount of time with them and everybody, you know, was similar as far as what their diagnosis and disease was. And now I know who my patients are. Sometimes they're sending me recipes that they have uh, made or they're sending me pictures of themselves in their prom dresses and saying, you know, thank you so much for helping us do it, you know, get to, you know, our goal or, you know, these diabetes patients who haven't had good control for many years and now are understanding things and sending me pictures of themselves and their A1Cs and their CGM readings. And so I have a much more personal relationship with my patients. I really strive to have each patient feel like they're a member of my family. And I also focus on patient advocacy. So I've had patients who have had brain tumors, for example, and we're not able to get in to see, uh, to get in for an MRI for three or four weeks. And I have to call the, you know, radiology center saying, you need to get them in today. And they do. And so I think seeing it from a patient perspective is also very important for us as physicians to understand what patients go through when they're on the phone on hold, or when they don't understand, you know, what lab tests mean and how much anxiety that causes for patients for their children. So it's really been very um, emotionally rewarding. But on the other hand, also, it makes me be more involved. And, and sometimes I, I think about some of these things a lot more than I did in my previous practice. Speaking about that, it, that involvement can sometimes have a double-edged sword to it or have a double-edged yes. sword effect. What What is your current time commitment and the access that the patients have to you? How do you how do you maintain a work-life balance uh, with the advocacy and the the uh, obvious, obviously, the amount of personal involvement that you have with your patients? So I take a much smaller load of patients, and so I think my goal is to be honest, no more than two hundred patients total. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm almost halfway there. And I started uh, in January. So I think that's my limiting factor is I really want to provide like quality. I want to provide quality care and I have to limit the number of patients that I see. That being said, not every patient, you know, wants to pay for the services and and I'm fine with that. And, and so I really have, I had a hard time in the beginning uh, setting boundaries, but I do say, you know, it's Monday through Friday, nine to five, really, um, if it's an emergency, then of course I respond to it. But otherwise, nine to five, no weekends um, at this point. And I really try to get everything taken care of before you know the end of the business day. Now, that being said, if there is obviously an emergency or something, then I do have you know partnerships with local pediatricians. So if there's an emergency, they couldn't go to the emergency room. They go to their local ER. Um, but patients in this model actually are very respectful of the doctor's time. And I don't have people abusing the system at all. In fact, most of the time, they're very apologetic, saying, we're very sorry to have bothered you, but you know, we just had a question about this. And usually, it's not anything super complicated, um, but they're very respectful of my time, and, uh, and they know that I'm available, and they know that I'll get back to them, and I think that decreases their anxiety also. So how do you have, you mentioned social media in your presentation, and mm-hmm. I'd be interested to know what you have found to be the most effective way to market your services. And also, what is the most effective way for patients to contact you in synchronous ways? Or do you use more asynchronous communication with them like texting or emails? Yeah, so I use all of those. Um, So social media I found has been helpful. So the biggest thing about social media, I will say, is that I didn't want to do it at all. Like, I never wanted to do social media. And I think we as physicians in general are not comfortable with social media. Uh, When I was in practice, I mean, it was a no, no. Like, just don't put yourself on social media. Don't do anything. But what I found is that there's a lot of, quote unquote, influencers that are not physicians. uh, They're not in healthcare, And they are saying a lot of, they're spreading a lot of misinformation to our medical community that is just wrong and sometimes dangerous. And I felt like, uh, I I mean, part of a large physician community that really advocates for social media use, you know, with evidence-based information. And there's a lot of us who are just starting to really provide evidence-based information. We provide society guidelines and really talk to the patients in a way that they are comfortable with. I mean, a lot of people, you know, I think their statistics are that there's Instagram and Facebook are still the two most heavily used social media platforms by patients and families. I even started, you know, being on TikTok because these, you know, adolescents are all on TikTok and they have a lot of misinformation that they are getting from TikTok. And our goal, my goal really was to educate and empower patients. It's always been that. And then to, to do it in a platform that they're comfortable in. And that's what I've found has been the benefit of social media. Uh, What I talk about on social media is very common things. A lot of it is on nutrition. I talk a lot about PCOS because that's been a passion of mine. Um, I talk, you know, about thyroid disease and things that are related to pediatric endocrinology and diabetes and obesity. Um, I put recipes on there. And so things that are helpful for my patients, but engaging as well. And 
And I think that is another way to, to spread education that's, that's, that patients need because they're going to get it from somewhere. So they might as well get it in a, from a reputable source. Was there a special, how did you get comfortable with social media? Did, is this something, um, what approach did you take? I don't know if I should say it on your podcast, what approach I took, but, but it's, um, I am still not comfortable fully with social media. So I'll just put it out there. So it's just something that I forced myself to do. And I had a marketing expert actually help me get comfortable with social media. And she really forced me to say things that I'm still not fully comfortable with it, but I think I've gotten more comfortable as I do it more and more. So. And how often do you release something onto Instagram or Facebook? Do you have a regular schedule? Yeah, so I have an assistant now that helps me. So I was doing a lot of it on my own. And I did a lot of it for myself, by myself for about six months. And then I just, you know, with the practice getting busier, I just don't have the time to do that. So I have an assistant now and she has a calendar. We talk about it weekly about what month we're going, you know, for each month, what we're going to do. So October was, you know, discussion about Halloween. And we talked a lot about endocrine related things related to diet and, and diabetes related things related to Halloween. And then November is diabetes awareness month. So we're going to talk a lot about diabetes. And so we really have a theme each month and I do reels sometimes Instagram reels. Uh, if I think there's, I have something to say, or if there's something new out in the news that I want people to know about, then I will say it on the posts. It still takes a lot to be comfortable on that platform. And how long have you been on those platforms? When did you start January, I would say. So just earlier this year. Well, that's great. It's interesting. I think a lot of people uh, have the same discomfiture with putting themselves out on social media. Uh, it's not a platform that a lot of physicians, at least in my age group, um, have been really comfortable with. So it's interesting to hear how you're using it. And it sounds like you're getting a great response from your patients on it. Yeah, I mean, I'm very surprised. I was very surprised that, you know, people are actually interested in, in looking. And what, I had a marketing expert, like I told you, help me with the very first one. And I was terrified to do it. And then she made me say a couple things and posted it. And I think I had like over a million views on it. And I was shocked, honestly. I was shocked that, you know, I said, you know, a couple things about, things I don't do as a pediatric endocrinologist, like I don't bring juice in the home, or um, I don't, you know, bring sugary treats in the home. And people were really mad about some of those statements that I made. And I think that's how it got over a million views. Because people were saying I was a bad mom and a bad parent. And I don't let my kids have juice. And it sort of just spun from there to say, well, I got more ideas of, well, you know, what do you drink then? And so I started talking about that, like, I just offer water and milk. And and then there was, you know, a lot of questions that came from that from parents saying, well, what kind of milk and, and how much? And so some of it sort of just spewed from there. And I think a lot of it, you know, I take some of these comments that people have and realize that there's a lot of um, information that people don't have. And so what ends up happening is people didn't even know the right parents also, and I didn't either as a parent, know what's the right portion of food to give to a child? How much activity should they do? And so as a result of that, I actually created a course. So I have like a 42-module online course that I created for parents to talk about nutrition, diet, exercise, hormone conditions. And that really the idea, a lot of it spurred from social media use because I was seeing a lot of people asking the same types of questions over and over again. 
That's great. That's a great example of how you can address a need that you might not have even identified at the beginning of this journey. Um, right. That's fascinating. This podcast is sponsored by the Physician Executive MBA program at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville's Haslam College of Business. In less than one calendar year, this program will equip you with valuable business acumen and leadership development not found in traditional medical school curriculum. Are you ready to join the longest-running physician-only MBA program in the country and a network of nearly 1,000 PEMBA graduates? Visit tiny.utk.edu forward slash POD podcast for information about this exciting opportunity. And now we'll return to the episode. I wondered if you'd mind if we kind of talked a little bit about um, your decision to pursue an MBA and how you think that has impacted this entrepreneurial journey that you're on. I think it was life-changing. I mean, it was really life-changing. For me, I was at the crossroads, I think. I was in practice for many years. I didn't really know the direction I wanted to go. I had, you know, I told you I was the medical director of my practice. I was overseeing six or seven other pediatric endocrinologists and a team of nurses and MAs. And and I was kind of bored, to be honest. And I wasn't satisfied with the type of care I was providing. And every time I would say, I want to do this, for example, do telemedicine in the practice or serve on XYZ committee or do something, it was always a no, like we don't have money for that, or we can't do this, or we can't do that. I think it was many years that I, you know, had that built up frustration. Um, And I just felt like I wasn't delivering care the way I wanted to. I often doubted my own ability as a physician Um, And I think that's very common. If you talk to women, you know, women have a lot of imposter syndrome and maybe men too, but I, I really felt like I had that. And I left the practice thinking I'm not going to come back. I had a really hard time leaving because I enjoyed my colleagues and, and um, I had been there for nine years and I was very, you know, comfortable, but I just thought I needed to do something different. And I left um, and went into the corporate world and went to Medicaid thinking I wanted to serve the Medicaid population. Um, I'm an immigrant myself. I wanted to serve, you know, lower income families and and really make a difference in healthcare overall. And I went to the MBA. I did the MBA program because I didn't understand the business side of medicine at all. And I was in a lot of corporate meetings where people were putting up spreadsheets and talking about, you know, the cost savings and and how much, you know, healthcare costs and. And I was like, I don't understand any of this. I just need to go and learn about this. And I was at the crossroads of, do I want to do an MPH and really serve, you know, public health, the public health community, or do I want to do an MBA? And I think I told you before, at one point, I thought I would do both programs at the same time because I couldn't decide which one to do. And uh, ultimately, I decided to, to do the MBA. It was a shorter program. And I thought, you know, I could learn the business side of medicine. There was some health policy that I could get. And I pursued the education at at, uh, Haslam. And while I was there, I had the, at the beginning, I thought, let me just, you know, understand medicine so that when I go back to work, I can understand, you know, what these business people are talking about. And as I was in the program, my colleague kept saying, and, you know, and, and while I was there, I was just sort of coming out of this burnout phase too. And thinking that I just wasn't good enough and wasn't, you know, good enough as a physician and as a pediatric endocrinologist. And I had picked this wrong specialty. I used to think that all the time I picked the wrong specialty. I'm just not happy in the specialty. And while I was there, 
all my colleagues at the program said, oh, wow, you're a pediatric endocrinologist. Like we need, we need you. We need you in Iowa. We need you in Missouri. We need you in this state. And I was like, wow, why do they need me? (laughs) You know, there's gotta be, there's gotta be people there. And I ended up talking to them and consulting for a lot of my, you know, physician colleagues about pediatric endocrinology cases. And really through the mentorship of the program, you know, we had to do a final project at the end of the year to present. And I thought, well, let me just come up with a business plan and see what happens. I mean, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to go back to pediatric endocrinology ever and practice. And as I was going through the process and doing all of my assignments in the program really related to building a direct care practice, uh, not to mention there were several people in the program already who were doing direct primary care. And I thought it was fascinating how they had built the program, built their own program and expanded and, and reached patients. Um, and so I started you know, researching that more. And ultimately, at the end of the year, I had a business plan for this uh, practice. And Don Leiter was my, um, my, was my mentor. And um, he said, why don't you just launch this? Like, just start it and do it and see what happens. I was like, wow, really? <laughs> people, are people going to pay me to do this? Or is, am I going to be able to make a living off of this? And so, um, so that's really how it happened. And I sort of gave up the, the corporate side because I sort of got fed up with like fighting for, you know, on the corporate side of medicine for things that I believed in that just often I was not in control of the ultimate decision in the end. So I think that's, you know, how the practice evolved and started. And still, you know, I still feel like I'm not really sure how this is going to go. I mean, I still have this, you know, doubt uh, moving forward, but I think it is. I'm just taking it one step at a time and, and moving forward with it. Well, I can see why you said it's life changing. I mean, it sounds like you're on a very different trajectory when you joined the MBA mm-hmm. program. You had a very different mm-hmm. vision and aspirations at that time. And this kind of brought you back to uh, a very different role that you're now enjoying much more than you were when you were practicing clinically before. Yeah. And I think that what was really eye opening to me was that there are so many things that we as physicians can do in healthcare. I mean, I've had many roles outside of just uh, direct, you know, patient care. And I've left clinical practice actually many times. I mean, my husband always tells me like, are you going to leave this again? Because like, I, I left, you know, I left academics and I went to the FDA and then I was like, oh, I need to go back to clinical medicine. And then I went to, you know, clinical medicine. I went to, you know, corporate and ultimately it kept taking me back to a place of service and serving my patients. And I, I think that's probably where I belong. I belong, you know, serving patients, but what I do enjoy is that I have a creative outlet. I think the social media piece is a creative outlet for me and that the patient education piece is, is a you know creative outlet for me and the direct care to patients without having to worry about how much am I going to be reimbursed from insurance has also been life changing. Cause I don't have to, every patient is the same to me. I don't care, you know, if I spend 10 minutes with them or an hour with them, they still have access to me. They still can ask me questions. And so every single patient gets the same level of care. Um, and I don't know if, I mean, I, I'd like to think that was the same way when I was in practice, but I don't know if it fully was. When you chose an MBA program, did did you have a sense of certain things 
certain structural things or organizational um, aspects of a program that would fit your work-life balance the best? And, and did those were those the factors that led you to choose the University of Tennessee, or were there other factors that led to you coming to Haslam for your executive MBA? Uh, yeah, so there were a lot of factors. I looked at several programs, and I looked at uh, the length of time that it would the program would be, and also I looked at the cost. And I have uh, two children, you know, they're aged uh, now 11 and 13, and I'm really the primary person who takes care of them. I mean, I do all those school drop-offs and pickups and and I really wanted something where I didn't have to be away from them that often. And so I think putting all those things together with a program that was less than a year, actually, the University of Tennessee program was 11 months and was weekends, you know, weekend sessions, 9 to 12, when my kids were sleeping. I think that was really helpful. And then there were some in-person, you know, time also that allowed me to have you new know, networking and, and understanding of, you know, really focusing on the education piece of it was important. But I think putting all those things together really helped me pick the program. Not to mention, I have a, I had a friend who did the program two years before me. And when I was trying to decide between the MPH and the MBA, he was like, you just have to do the MBA. This program is the best one. It's supportive. And I think that's really where I thrive is in a supportive environment that's not really cutthroat. And it was designed for physicians and I really didn't want to be in an MBA program where I had a lot of like 20 and 30 year olds who were like, were just a different path than I was. And so mm -hmm. I think having a program that was directed to physicians was also very important to me. Well, this has been a great interview. I, I really appreciate you spending so much time sharing with the audience. I, I guess the last question that I would like to ask is, is there anything that we haven't really touched on that you think was critical or pivotal in this journey that you'd like to share? I think the only thing I'd like to say is that as physicians, we often feel stuck in the roles that we're in. Um, I have had, you know, many physicians, men and women reach out to me saying, you know, we just feel stuck uh, in where we are and we don't know how to make a leap to go, you know, to one, you know, move to one thing. In fact, my husband even says to me, like, I could never do what you did. Like I could never do all this. And I think it's important for us to understand that we are highly, like, we're highly motivated and highly educated, and we can make a change, and we can explore different avenues. I mean, I explored many different avenues. I probably lost about 10 pounds when I left my practice because I felt like, I, I was like, what am I doing with my life? And then ultimately, even though I left practice, I you know came back to it. And I think you can always come back to practice, but I think it's okay to explore different things. And we're not often taught that through our careers that we can do something different and do something completely different and then come back. Well, that's great. Well, again, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate your time. And uh, I look forward to talking with you again, especially getting some updates on how this practice develops and grows over the next several years. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being here. It's been great. That wraps up our show for today. Thank you very much for joining and listening to the podcast. If you have any comments or questions regarding this episode, please feel free to add them in the comment section on our website, tiny.utk.edu forward slash POD podcast. We love hearing from you and are happy to answer any questions you may have. 
I will add a link to the website below. Please also don't forget to subscribe to the podcast by clicking the subscribe button. Add Pemba On Demand to your podcast library today. I would also appreciate it if you could leave a review of the podcast on your podcast player. Share the podcast with your friends and colleagues also. Please take good care of yourselves. And as always, good luck with your future.